The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, ice cream melting point mysteriously lowers by 5 degrees Fahrenheit everywhere on Earth, but Omaha and Pinedale, Wyoming. Bringing on 10-second brain freeze that threatens motorists and the patients of ice cream-eating surgeons. Lockstep and key skipping, plus we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's uncompromising honor. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. When the late great science fiction legend Jerry Pornell passed away, he left an almost completed manuscript for the new book, the next book in the Janissary series. Jerry Pornell called that book Mamelukes. Well, with 80% of it done and a clear outline for completion, his son Philip Pornell decided to take up the task of completing it, along with Honor Harrington creator David Weber. We talked with David Weber and Philip Pornell about completing the book, about the work of Jerry Pornell, and about this great science fiction adventure novel, Mamelukes. This is the third part and conclusion of the interview. Plus more David Weber greatness as we continue the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now here's the news. Hey, there's a new monthly contest for June that you can enter to win a free signed copy of a great Bane book. Con Man, or Con Woman, the new short story anthology, Give Me Liberty Con, celebrates one of science fiction and fantasy's unique conventions, as well as its founder, Tim Bolgio. The anthology features excellent stories by contributors David Weber, David Drake, David B. Cobb, Larry Correa, Timothy Zahn, just lots lots and lots of great authors who wanted to be in on this. Lots of authors and fans have fond memories of attending their first Liberty Con, and some of them wrote stories for the book. Now, we'd like to hear from you about your convention memories. Tell us about the first or favorite science fiction con you attended, whether it be Liberty Con or otherwise, in a short paragraph, 100 words or fewer, to win a copy of Give Me Liberty Con, signed by the editors, send your entry in the body of an email. You could also possibly send in a sort of um, fantasy version of a con that you've dreamed up that you might want to go to in your mind or your dreams. If you haven't ever been to a science fiction con, give it a shot. Send your entry in the body of an email to contest at bain.com by June 20th. Put June Contest in the subject field, and please remember to include your name. Limit one entry per person, please. Winners will be selected by the Bain editorial staff, and the winning entry will be published as part of the announcement, so that'll be fun. And we'll send you a copy of Give Me Liberty Con, edited by TKF Weiskopf and Christopher Woods. This is part three and the conclusion of a multi-part interview with Philip Pornell and David Weber discussing Mamelukes by Jerry Pornell. Part two is available on last week's podcast. Welcome, David Weber and Philip Pornell. 
to the podcast. Hello, guys. Hi, how are you? Good afternoon. We're doing all right, considering. Um, David Weber, as uh, most everyone knows, is um, has got about 8 million copies of his books in print, 30 titles, probably more on the New York Times bestseller list by now. Um, creator of the uh, Honor Harrington series, the, the that Oath of Swords fantasy series, um, multiverse series, just lots and lots of uh, stuff out from Bain and elsewhere. Um, and what was the last thing? Oh, you know, the uh, the next thing that's going to be up from David is going to be the Valkyrie Protocol, which is the, um, the sequel to the Gordian Protocol, which he's been doing with Jacob Hollow. We'll hope to talk about that soon, too. Um, Philip Pornell is, um, Philip, tell me, uh, I was, I was struggling to find your bio and, uh, maybe you could just fill me in on that. Uh, sure. So, uh, I spent 26 years in the, uh, Navy, uh, as a surface warfare officer, meaning I drove and fought ships. I also was, uh, have the uh, privilege of going to the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, got a master's degree in operations analysis, which I used uh, when I had alternating tours between the Pentagon and the fleet. Um, so in the fleet, I served on cruisers, destroyers, amphibious ships, and uh, high-speed vessel, experimental high-speed vessel. And then on, in the Pentagon, I served on the Navy staff, and then on the uh, OSD uh, um, capabilities assessment uh, program evaluation uh, and also uh, three year, or five years at the Austin assessment um, where I was doing uh, war gaming, modeling simulation, and other types of analysis. And um, you're at, what is net assessment anyway? So net assessment is the uh, Secretary of Defense's uh, internal think tank and tasked with looking out 30 years into the future and uh, diagnosing what the future uh, security environment would, would be. Um, it had a legendary uh, director, uh, uh, Mr. Marshall, uh, Mr. Andrew Marshall, uh, who, who led it for several years before he retired and unfortunately passed away a couple years ago. Um, and he was the one who identified when the Soviet Union was going to fall, and why, and identified uh, China as the uh, 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 probable uh, threat after that. So he was very prescient, and uh, uh, in many respects, the task of the Austin assessment is to write really hard science fiction, and they've done uh, remarkably well in terms of um, diagnosing future security environments, and one of the key tools we uh, use there was uh, wargaming. It sounds like super cool. How how long were you there? I was there for five years until uh, I retired from the Navy, and then for the last uh, uh, three and a half years, I've been uh, a, a contractor. I was originally with a company called Launcher Strategy Group, working through the Austin Assessment, and now I'm at a company called uh, Group W, uh, where I do uh, analysis and wargaming. That's cool. You are also, um, and what we what we want to talk about today is is uh, a new book, which is out of booksellers everywhere. This is Mamelukes by Jerry Pornell, who was your dad. Um, and, you know, Jerry Pornell was a 
was one of the greatest science fiction writers of all time, um, master of military science fiction, creator of the, the Falkenberg series and um, Janus series, Exiles to Glory, High Justice. These are things that Bain put out, King David's Spaceship, um, and uh, had those great bestsellers with Larry Niven, Lucifer's Hammer, The Moat in God's Eye, Footfall. Um, in addition to that, you know, we've talked about this on the podcast, Jerry, you and uh, I and your brother before in John Carr. Um, Jerry Pornell, Dr. Jerry Pornell was a polymath who held advanced degrees in psychology, statistics, engineering, political science, and all of these fields he, you know, it wasn't just uh, show degrees. I mean, he was also actively involved in all of this as well. So um, an amazing man. And um, so there was a manuscript when he passed away. Um, there was there were several, I think, uh, but this is, this is the thing that he was... Uh, just about done with can you let's talk about that before we dive into the story and such um what how'd you find this what happened how do we know this was here so uh dad had been working on mammaluks for several years and he of course had some uh, health issues over the years he there was a growth in his head i think it was cancer but we don't never know for certain and uh, they had to treat it with uh um, hard radiations to uh, uh remove it and that moved him from the uh, superhuman status where he would churn out all this work, not only the books, but the uh, uh, View from Chaos Manor and all the other uh, work he did. And it made him merely human. So it slowed him down uh, by comparison considerably. And then uh, later he had a stroke. So um, after he'd recovered from the stroke, he had gone back into trying to finish uh, uh, Mameluke's. And uh, I'd had many conversations with him over the years about, uh, you know, what he was working on and where he wanted to go. And, he, you know, and, and like many of his stories uh, or many of the other stories in the Janissary series, it was the book that just couldn't be finished. There were just so many opportunities and it just kept expanding. So he, he assessed that the book was about 80% done. And then, unfortunately, uh, uh, he passed away. And uh, the book that, um, you know, was, was initially unfinished, uh, but it was 80% done. So I, um, yeah, I, I thought it was a great story and it needed to be finished. And so uh, I talked to Tony uh, 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 Weisskopf and said, I, you know, I'd like to help uh, finish this, but uh, I'm obviously going to need some help. And uh, uh, I think uh, David can... can uh, finish out the story from that perspective well i was uh i was in your offices in north carolina uh for a convention uh i guess two or three years ago now um and uh tony and i were talking and i said you know there are, i'm getting to a point in life where it is obvious that i am not going to have enough time to finish all of the storylines that that I wanted to tell and she was like yeah you're not going to live forever I'm like thank you Tony you make me feel so much better um but um I we were talking about unfinished storylines and I said you know there are two that I always wanted to actually be involved with and one of them was uh Piper's Lord Calvin and I said the other was Jerry's Jerry's Janissary series and she said oh you you would have liked to have worked in the Janissaries universe? 
And I said, yeah. She said, ah, have I got a deal for you? <laughs> and so that's how I got um, involved. Um, and for me, it was very, very much um, a labor of love. Um, I read these books uh, when they came out, um, and I loved them then. Um, the first one came out while I was uh, in graduate school, um, and uh, it was just and I was and I was specializing in uh, military and diplomatic history. So I mean, it was right in my wheelhouse for for uh, the problems that Rick was facing after he got. Uh, to Tran. Um, so let's put it this way. Nobody had to draft me for this project. I was, I was, oh yeah, I, I, I want to be, uh, involved in this. And I have to say that, uh, looking at the material that, uh, Jerry had already completed, uh, it was very clear, I think, Phil, I, I feel like I think you'll back me up on this. It was very clear where he wanted to go. So in the middle of the book, then we leave Tran and we go to Earth and meet this dude who's a drunk um, on on the street name of Bart Saxon. Uh, tell us a little bit about this, uh, because this really... Um, is a is a cool it's like it's kind of amazing how it works so well that that suddenly we're there and then it it all starts to play back in yeah yeah um that was that was a, an interesting uh segue uh that was all jerry um phil do we want to tell them why Bart is there? Do we feel that that would give away too much of the storyline, or are we going to worry about that? Well, let's just say that Bart um, has his own personal demons, um, alcohol being only one of them, but he's an incredibly smart man, and we learn that he was an incredibly capable teacher who uh, had a great mark on... um, his students until his personal foibles basically destroyed his life. Well, this makes him a perfect uh, agent for uh, Axarol to uh, employ because if he, he, he's, he's very capable, he's very intelligent, but nobody cares about him anymore. He's on the street. So he's, he's kind of like the perfect mark for what they have in mind. He could disappear and nobody's going to miss him. Yeah, what, one thing we didn't mention before is that there are rules for humans who can be recruited from Earth. And one of the rules is you can't take anybody who will be missed. Uh, so, for example, in Rick's case, they could rescue the the mercenaries because they were all going to get killed anyway. And they would be written off as having been wiped out by the Cubans. Uh, Bart is a, quote, nobody, close quotes, on the street. Uh, so nobody's going to be really surprised if he just disappears kind of thing. Um, I think, too, that there were some external factors involved in driving some of the actions that got Bart uh, onto the street in the first place. 
uh, Phil, I'm thinking here particularly that part of what was going on was his was a reaction to what he discovered was going on with his wife. Um, but it leaves him with questions about him about himself that he didn't have before. Um, it's uh, and I, and I'm very fond of Cal Haskins, who is yeah. um, also on the streets, uh, and who sort of uh, attaches himself uh, to Rick, and who turns out to be a very strong, important, pivotal. pivotal yes, really. Um, I really like Cal a lot. Uh, I, I actually, I really like Bart, but in some ways, I think I like Cal better. Um, he was, uh, he was a non-com that, that his best days he didn't realize were happening to him, right? And he kind of wants to retreat. He, he was building villages. He was, you know, winning hearts and minds, as the phrase goes. Um, and he was actually good at it. And then he thought, hey, well, he better, was, life would be better on the outside. And then. Uh, uh, things didn't work out so well uh, for him. He kind of lost his direction and uh, uh, wound up on the streets. And he has his own personal demons that he's uh, uh, struggling with. But uh, yeah. we see in the course of this book yeah. that he finds something far more important than himself. And that's when he, he you know self-actualizes. I don't think it's too much to say that these guys are going to be taken to Tran. Um, and... It, and they are, they're like a backup plan that the Janissaries who work for this. Is, I mean, this is all backstory to what actually happens in the book in a way. Um, it, the Janissaries who work for the Confederation who are trying to survive as, as humans and, and help humans survive. There's, there really is a little bit of an element of, uh, King David starship, um, and and what's going on here because the criteria for membership in the confederacy is to develop interstellar flight um and earth is headed that way still has a ways to go well part of the game plan is that if tran can develop interstellar flight in that interval between the the cycle that creates the mad weed and everything else um and a unified planetary government then they can petition for membership in the Confederation, and then they would be protected, Tran at least, would be protected against the we-have-to-kill-back-the-wild-humans thing that could get Earth wiped out. And so that is really Rick's overriding ultimate strategic objective, is to create the conditions in which, in the 600 years of fallow time between visitations, this could develop on Tran. Well, Bart, and as far as he's concerned, this means it all has to be done in secrecy so that the Shalnuxi don't know about it, so that they don't get nuked, etc. And we've got 600 years to work with. Um, Bart is sent basically to jumpstart the, the scientific development on Tran big time. Um, uh, and he is sent with a whole bunch more infrastructure in that respect than, than Rick ever had. And one of the reasons for this is that uh, Agrizal's, um timetable 
has been accelerated by events in the Confederation. But Rick doesn't have a note from him that says, here's what you need to do. Instead, Agrisol is basically saying, I really can't advise you <laughs> from here as to what to do there. Well, uh, Ag- Agrisol is using compartmentalization to uh, not only protect his plans, but himself. No, absolutely, absolutely. But when when Axarol is a human janissary, he's the sort of the the underground leader of the janissaries, right? Well, he's, he's uh, he, uh, well, his official title is the uh, inspector. He's the policeman in charge of Earth to make sure that the humans on Earth don't figure out what's going on, don't violate uh, certain terms, uh, and uh, you know maintain stability of the Confederation regarding Earth. But um, he's kind of like the inspector from uh, Casablanca. Uh, you know, I'm shocked. I'm shocked to hear that humans are being uh, um, plucked off Earth and sent off to other places. Well, I think also my impression, Phil, is that in addition to being the, the inspector in charge of Earth, that he has uh, additional uh, duties uh, that extend well beyond just keeping an eye on Earth because of the degree of contacts and so forth that he has uh, throughout the, the uh, Confederacy uh, police forces and whatnot. Um, it's I, I, I would certainly argue he, he appears to be the leader of the Free Stars uh, movement, but of course he would be aghast if anyone was, anyone was ever to say such things out loud. Yes, yes, yes. Well, and also, we don't know for sure because we haven't had an opportunity to get inside the Confederacy yet to see who else he's talking with uh, and exactly how widespread this, this, this movement is. What we do know, and I think you can, I think some of this is revealed in, in the current book is that there are cross-currents within the Confederacy that Agzal is, is uh, navigating through and using and surviving against, if you will, uh, some of these currents. Um, one of the things that's kind of fascinating to me in looking at where Mamelukes fits into the canon on this is that the interval between the books is mirrored by the interval between the arrival of these fresh forces. We don't, the, the Mamelukes is not set in 2019, 2020. It's set about 1992, Phil. Is that about right? Uh, yes. Yeah, about right. Yeah, Rick's been there about 14 years. Yeah. Uh, and and the, you know the Soviet Union has imploded back home and whatnot while while he was away. Um, so there's a lot of stuff that's happened. And when Bart turns up, he and uh, some other guys who turn up are able to kind of update Rick on what's been happening back home. But that interval is also time uh, for for uh, uh, Agrisol for his plans to have a big enough time window to change from what he originally discussed with Rick. And that's part of the entire feel of this book for me is the fact that, that the, that, that Agrizal is 
under pressure uh, to change his plans, adapt his plans, and whatnot, which gives us a really interesting series of hooks going forward from this book um, for for storyline complexity. Yeah. Well, um, so Saxon and Harrison and, and this new group of humans show up with a bunch of tech, um, and, and th- that's what the battle's about. Um, and that's that's the, <laughs> the, the battle is about sh- three shipping containers <laughs> of high tech that arrived dumped on this planet, and you know. When they, when, I, I love it when when uh, when uh, Saxon is talking to uh, some of Rick and some of his guys, and he casually mentions laptops, and I'm like, "What's that?" <laughs> yeah, they're from they're from the historic past, as far as we're concerned. Yeah. So the, but this is the, they're not just you know it's not just shipping containers. This is a seed crystal for a radical transformation. That and and whoever controls the magic is gonna you know control Tran, and it, it's uh so what else can we say about um, Mamelukes? I think this is as far as we could possibly go without giving away any more action. But uh, they, I mean, Rick is a winning character in the. I think we talked about his character. Talara is really interesting. His wife, um, she is um, she's a. She's a schemer, but at the same time a, a true person. Um, he tr- he he really relies on her in a lot of ways, and he misses her a lot when she's gone. There's a lot of great characterization. Oh, absolutely. When they were estranged from one another, it was destroying both of them. Um, there's a line in, uh, there's a comment in one of the earlier books where Rick is thinking that on Tran... It's Rick and Tylara in like one word. That's how they're regarded by the by the, uh, the 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 people of Tran, like William and Mary, but even more so. Um, and I think that really sums up their relationship. Uh, Phil, who, if if you had to pick a favorite character from from Tran, Phil, who would it be? Well, there's a lot to choose from. Um... Tylara is certainly the most interesting character. In one of the earlier books, I think uh, it's Gwen who describes Tylara as if you were to drop her into a howling wilderness, she would find the nearest headman and convince him that he needed a concubine and suddenly discover that all his wives had been dispatched and that he was no longer in charge. Uh, That (laughs) that, that would be the description of of, uh, of Tylara. Um, and she is, you know, the true Machiavellian uh, um, uh, character in there who turns her, her weaknesses into uh, uh, strength. Um, I think, I yeah, think she, that one of... She's someone I, don't want, I would not want to cross. No, I wouldn't either, but one of the fascinating things to me is she's Machiavellian. She, she does what needs to be done. And in the end, that almost destroys her because she, too, is basically a moral person. Um, The reasons that she does what she does, even when they are uh, the most Machiavellian, pragmatic uh, of actions, ultimately is tied into very much the same things that drive Rick 
in terms of doing the right thing. Um, it's, and I think, I think that Bart winds up finding very much his own Tylara uh, at at the at the end of this book, um, and it's going to be really really interesting to see how those relationships continue uh, and and uh, and expand. Uh, yeah. It's just that this I, is. I think the key this, is we. I think there's some real dad created some really in depth. Um, you know, not like um, some storylines that people have seen of these women who are supposed to be strong but are really, you know, two-dimensional characters and not really that strong. I think these some of these uh, uh, ladies in this storyline are like scary, strong, and they are three-dimensional. I think I think that I would say that all good stories, all good stories, in my opinion, are character-driven. The stronger the characters, the stronger the story. Um, and there are a bunch, a bunch of really strong characters in these books. And I don't necessarily mean in terms of they are the the um, that they are the perfect character. That there are no Peggy Sue's um, uh, in here. Um, there are. Peggy Sue's don't survive for very long on Tran. No, no, but 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 the thing is, all of these characters, all of these characters are flawed, and those flaws are strengths in some ways. Okay, every one of these characters, and I think I think this is true that I can actually say this: every single one of these characters um, has problems baked into who they are. Uh, Obligations they don't know how to discharge. Um, uh, I love Publius. Okay, the the heir of Caesar, the womanizer, the arrogant guy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, who is still still trying to do the best job that he can as as heir to the empire. Um, all these guys, men and women. Uh, are fully developed in the sense that they are fallible human beings who are being called upon to perform under circumstances and pressure that ought to destroy them, and they have to learn to cope with it anyway. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's um, it's it's just uh, in, in so many ways, it's a world and a and characters you can get lost in. It's a great read. Um, I, we should mention briefly. I think it's got a great cover by Dominic Harmon, also. Um, Oh yeah, yes, it does. I I think that's my favorite cover out of the entire series so yeah. so far. He really I'll... caught Rick um, that that stare. So well, um, the book is Mamelukes by Jerry Pornell with contributions by David Weber and Philip Pornell, and it is out at booksellers everywhere. Um, guys, thank you so much for for taking time to talk about this. Um, this great completion to a to a legendary writer's um, uh, series. No, 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 no. This is not the completion to the series. Okay, it's not complete to this great completion of a book, the next book in this legendary writer's series. Yeah, yeah. I think readers will find a very you know satisfactory thing conclusion of the story where uh, Dad wanted this book to end at. But uh, based on what you'll see in the book and in the, more. 
he had many he had plans of where this was to go and uh the saga of humanity's place in the stars uh is uh, still uh, very much uh uh in question yes yeah. all right so let's do, we we should talk about that briefly um it, what uh are we going to get more <laughs> is it we are going to get more um Phil and I are uh Phil Phil is much more fully briefed in on exactly where Jerry was going than I am for for obvious reasons. Um but he and I and and Tony Weisskopf uh have discussed uh where we will go from here. Um I think that it will work very well. Uh, we are going to uh, do as little mucking about with uh, established beloved characters uh, like Rick uh, as we can. We're not going to turn them into who they're not. Um, but there's a whole other dimension to this, uh, to, to Jerry's uh, plans uh, for the series that I think we're going to be uh, going to be uh, looking at. Um, one thing. Um, Phil and I both have an enormous amount of respect for his father's work and his father's writing voice, and we are not him. Uh, so we are not going to try to do a pastiche of Jerry Pornell. We are going to try to tell Jerry Pornell's story in a way that works for Jerry Pornell readers, but not imitating him. Does that make sense? Well, for um, it, it, I don't think that there could be a better um, duo to carry this series forward um, as far as, uh, it, I mean, I can't speak for Jerry Pornell, of course, but I can't imagine anybody better to, to keep writing these things. So it's a very happy thing to hear. Yeah. Well, Phil has um, uh, access to information that I didn't have that I was fascinated to hear when we were talking with Tony uh, about Phil about some of the stuff that your your dad had in there about the other factions in the Confederacy and whatnot. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to seeing how that unfolds. Yes, like well, I said, humanity's place in the stars is. Uh, um, you know, not been uh, uh, written, but they certainly were outlined in the uh, notes Dad left behind in the tales that he uh, told me at times. That is that is so cool, um, and it, it's such a unique situation, and uh, it's it's going to make for for great uh, continuation of the series. Uh, right now, the book is Mamelukes, uh, and it's out everywhere. Um, anything else we should add? Anything, Phil? Um. No, I'll, I'll just uh, uh, leave the shameless plug for all the listeners here. Uh, David uh, um, and I essentially volunteered to help finish uh, this book, and the proceeds of it is basically going to uh, uh, to my mother. So if I, you know, if, if you don't mind me guilt tripping you, buy this book <laughs> to keep my widowed mother in her home. Uh, but uh, this was basically Dad's uh, insurance policy, and I. Uh, uh, encourage everyone to uh, uh, read, read, buy, and read this book uh, to help mom. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. And even if you're a cold-hearted bastard, you should still buy it because it's a great book. <laughs> so, yeah. 
Well, thank you guys so much once again. Thank you. Okay. Talk to you later. Okay. okay. All right. Thanks a lot. I'll uh, I'll leave it there. Goodbye. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Bye bye, Bill. Bye, Tony. That was part three and the conclusion of our multi-part interview with Philip Pornell and David Weber discussing Mamelukes by Jerry Pornell. Part two is available on last week's podcast. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Solarian League. For hundreds of years they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's league are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising courage. Honor Harrington has worn the star kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League, and hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. George Benton Tower, City of Old Chicago, Old Earth, Sol System. Sorry I'm late, Permanent Senior Undersecretary for Foreign Affairs in Akenti Kolokoltsov told his colleagues as he stepped through the conference room's doors and they slid silently shut behind him. I was ready to walk out of my office when one of my analysts, Stefanos Nye, I think I've mentioned him to you before, asked for an urgent appointment. He was right about the urgency, and one thing led to another. I had to make some immediate decisions, and it took a little while to get all the technical information I needed. You could have screened to let us know you'd be delayed. There was an unpleasant edge in Nathan McCartney's reply. Then again, they'd expected him almost an hour earlier. It's not like we don't all have plenty of urgent appointments of our own we could be using our time on instead of sitting twiddling our thumbs, McCartney added. Kolokolso frowned at him, his eyes cold. Of all the people in this room, McCartney, as permanent senior undersecretary of the interior, bore the most direct responsibility for the unholy mess they faced. Kolokolsov was prepared to admit he'd contributed his own fair share to the making of that mess, but none of the others could rival the string of disasters McCartney and his ally, the late, unlamented Fleet Admiral Rajampet, had brewed up before Rajampet's overdue suicide. I decided it wasn't a very good idea to discuss highly sensitive matters over the calm, Nathan, he said after a moment. We've got enough alligators biting us on the arse without letting anything unfortunate get leaked. Oh, don't be ridiculous, Inakanti. Malachi Abruzzi, the permanent senior undersecretary of information, shook his head. Our comms are the most secure in the entire galaxy. Really? Kolokoltsov crossed the table, settled into the chair at its head, and turned it to face the others. You're confident of that, are you? Of course I am. Then perhaps you'd care to explain 
how the conversation you and Nathan had last month about how to handle the Hypatian situation happened to hit the public boards in Hypatia last week? The silence in the deeply buried, heavily shielded conference room was as total as it was sudden, and he looked around his colleagues' faces. What conversation was that? Omasupe Quartermain asked after a long, still moment. McCartney, in particular, had been on the permanent senior undersecretary of Commerce's personal shit list ever since the situation in the fringe began deteriorating. Since she and her colleague, Agata Vodoslovsky, the permanent senior undersecretary of the Treasury, were the ones trying desperately and unsuccessfully to cope with the catastrophic fiscal consequences. The one in which they considered how much simpler things would get if we dropped an intervention battalion or two into Hypatia to encourage President Van Gelis to call off the referendum. Something about shooting every 10th senator until they got it right, I believe. Kolokoltsov's voice was even colder than his eyes, and Vodoslavsky joined him and Quartermain in glowering at Abruzzi and McCartney. Oh, come on, Inakenti, Abruzzi protested. That was never a serious policy suggestion. He shook his head, expression disgusted. For God's sake, there are over two billion people on Hypatia and another million point two in the Alexandria belt. Someone really thinks a couple of intervention battalions are going to turn something like that around? Give me a break. Of course, I don't think that. That doesn't mean someone else might not. And let's be honest here. It wouldn't be all that different from quite a few interventions OFS has pulled off out in the protectorates, now would it? Did it ever occur to either of you that with feelings running as high as they are, and enough people on the other side primed to jump on any opening we give them, finding out that two of the mandarins are even talking about what would amount to a coup against a legally elected system president would play right into the hysteria monger's hands? First, we were on a secure government comm. Who the hell was going to hear about it? Abruzzi demanded. And secondly, it should have been totally clear from the context of our entire conversation that we were venting our frustration, not recommending some kind of serious policy. Malachi, you're the permanent undersecretary of information. You know better than anyone else in this room how easy it is to strip something out of its context and turn it into a soundbite that says exactly the opposite of what whoever said it actually meant. And that's just what some bastard in Hypatia's done with your and Nathan's little conversational faux pas. Abruzzi had opened his mouth to respond. Now he shut it again, his expression thunderous, because Kolokoltsov was right. The Ministry of Information spent far more of its resources on shaping the narrative, what an earlier and more honest age might have called producing propaganda, than it ever did on straight news releases. How the hell did anybody get their hands on it in the first place? McCartney demanded, glaring at Abruzzi with a certain self-righteousness. He wasn't the one who just proclaimed the inviolability of their communications channels after all. If I knew that, whoever's responsible for it would be roasting on a slow spit, Kolokoltsov replied grimly. All I know is that the latest courier boat from Hypatia came in about three hours ago, and your conversation, shorn of anything that could conceivably suggest it wasn't a serious policy suggestion, or at least a serious consideration, had been on the boards for two days before it left. In those two days, according to Stefanos, it logged over 972 million hits, 
I've done the math, by the way. That works out to 49% of the total population of the star system, including every babe in arms. And for your information, that's 75% of the adult population. To say it isn't playing well with the voters would be something of an understatement, Nathan. Oh my God. Quartermain's tone couldn't seem to decide between disgust, anger, and resignation. So how bad is the damage, Inakanti? Well, it isn't good. Kolokoltsov popped a data chip into the terminal in front of him, and the header of a report appeared on his colleagues' displays. This is Nye's initial take on it. He's doing a more deliberate analysis, and the numbers may get a little better, but I doubt it'll make much difference in the end. And the conclusion he's reached is that what was going to be a squeaker that would probably go against us is in the process of turning into something just a bit more emphatic. The word he used was tsunami, actually. All over what couldn't be more than three or four seconds of a calm conversation? Vodoslavsky looked as if she would have liked to be incredulous. Oh, it's more than three or four seconds. Kolokoltsov spared McCartney in a brutzia, fulminating glare, then looked at Vodoslavsky. It would seem there was quite a bit of frustration venting in the conversation, and whoever handed it over to the Hypatian Newsies must have edited all the choicer bits together, because the actual soundbite runs almost six minutes. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying this is the only thing driving Hypatian public opinion. There were already a lot of negative factors in the mix, and we all know it. But it looks as if this could be the emotional trigger that turns a vote that already looked dicey into an outright disaster. Shit. Omasupe Quartermain seldom used colorful language, but she'd clearly decided to make an exception, and Kolokoltsov didn't blame her. With less than a third of Beowulf System's population, and perhaps a fifth of its gross system product, Hypatia was on the small size for what was technically a core system of the League. For that matter, as a full member system, Hypatia's contribution to the Solarian League's federal budget was limited, aside from the relatively modest duties levied on its interstellar shipping. It was a useful bit of cash flow, but there were probably a dozen protectorate systems which contributed at least as much. So from that perspective, Hypatia's potential defection was unlikely to make an already grim situation much worse. But Hypatia, like Beowulf, had been a founding member of the Solarian League when the League Constitution was proclaimed right here in old Chicago, 757 T years ago last month. Not only that, the system was only 44 light years, less than six days for a dispatch boat from Beowulf and the Beowulf terminus of the Manticoran wormhole junction. If Hypatia opted to secede, and even more disastrously, to throw in its lot with its longtime neighbors, trading partners, and friends, it would expand the Grand Alliance's bridgehead at the very heart of the Solarian League dangerously. Worse, a successful secession, another successful secession, since Beowulf's was a foregone conclusion as soon as the Beowulfers got around to holding their own vote, would go a disastrously long way toward validating the right to secede in the court of public opinion, and that could not be allowed. Perhaps you can see now why I didn't screen you about this, Kolokoltsov observed. In fact, I know it's going to be an incredible pain, but in addition to assuming anything we say on our nice, secure comm system is likely to be overheard, and watching our tongues accordingly. 
I think any sensitive information will need to be couriered back and forth between us, at least for the next few days. For that matter, it'd probably be smart of us to handle really sensitive information that way for the foreseeable future. That'd make it almost impossible to coordinate properly, Vodoslavsky objected. No, it won't. Kolokoltsov shook his head. It'll make it difficult, granted, but all of us, except you, have our offices here in George Benton. I don't know how they got to Nathan and Malachi's calm conversation, but this conference room is only a lift shaft away from our private offices, and it's shielded against every form of eavesdropping known to man. For that matter, so are our offices. I've already found you 24,000 square meters of floor space here in the tower, and if you need it, we can free up twice that much in 72 hours. I know moving your entire staff over would be a pain in the arse, but I don't really see an option if we're going to keep you in the loop. You're serious, aren't you? Dead serious, he said flatly. Look, maybe this is an exercise in paranoia on my part, but we're about to get handed our heads in Hypatia, people. So far, most of the core world aren't especially worried about all this, which is a mixed blessing. They're not champing at the bit to throw their support behind us, but we don't have a couple dozen Beowulfs bolting from the League, yet. But that's why we can't. We just can't go on with this kind of crap hitting us in the face every other week. He looked around the conference room for a long, silent moment and saw it in their faces. So far, the majority of core worlders still regarded the conflict with Manticore as only one more escapade in the fringe. They were used to that sort of thing, so used to it that they took it for granted. True, this time the Mantis' wormhole seizures were starting to pinch many of the inner member systems enough to hurt, but what was pneumonia for the federal government's revenue stream was little more than a minor cold for the various system economies, and that was especially true for those in the Corps who had plenty of domestic industry. And despite the enormous death tolls the SLN had suffered, there was little moral outrage either. For one thing, the public at large didn't know how high those totals were. For another, the SLN was a professional military force which represented an incredibly tiny demographic of the League's total population. Those deaths simply weren't impacting any significant percentage of the civilian population, not yet at least. And in many ways, he and his colleagues were just as happy about that. There were a few talking heads trying to view with alarm where the Navy's losses were concerned, but they were gaining remarkably little traction, especially with Abruzzi managing the news flow so carefully. All of which meant the Mantis were managing to strangle the Mandarins to death without enraging Solarian public opinion, outside the Sol system, where the professional governing class lived, at least. That was both a good thing and a bad thing from the Mandarin's perspective, but so far, the good outweighed the bad. And if they went on shedding the member systems which were paying attention, some of those other fat and happy member systems were going to wake up and smell the coffee. And if that happened... I've talked to my tech people, he went on. That's one of the reasons I was so late. And they say that if we're all here in the tower, they can run secure, shielded, hardwired comm lines that could only be tapped with direct physical access to the cables. I know it sounds like Dark Ages technology, but if it'll work, I don't really give a damn how antiquated it is. And if all the cable involved is here in the same tower, it'll be a lot easier for us to make sure nobody's getting that physical access to it. 
Vodislavsky sat back, shaking her head, and Kolokoltsov couldn't blame her. In truth, he wasn't certain himself how much of his proposal was rational and how much was the product of his own increasing desperation. The worst thing about it, he thought, was that he proposed to turn Benton Tower into a fortress, and people living inside fortresses developed fortress mentalities. If he and his colleagues retreated into a bunker, even one as splendidly equipped as this one, it might encourage them to retreat into a deeper and deeper disconnect with the galaxy about them as well. But where's the option, he asked himself. Whether we like it or not, somebody hacked our comms, and none of our techs have found any fingerprints pointing at who it might have been or how the hell they did it. And I don't have to explain all the implications to the others. They know as well as I do that if someone can hack our comms, God only knows what else they can break into. And really, the only one who'd be physically moving would be Agatha. The rest of us are already in George Benton. For that matter, most of the ministries have been here since the day it was built, so it's not even like the rest of the League will realize we're fording up in the first place. No, they wouldn't. George Benton Tower was indelibly associated in the public's mind with the might and majesty of the League's federal government. Moving the other ministries out of George Benton would have generated far more speculation than moving Treasury into it. But he and his colleagues would know, and so would their most senior and trusted subordinates. And from there, the awareness would seep downward with the inevitability of a winter freeze in Tarkosale, his hometown in ancient Siberia. He looked around the shielded guarded conference room once more and wondered how often his fellows reflected upon the name of the two-kilometer-tall tower which housed the Solarian League's heart and brain, thought about the fact that it had been named for one of the dozen or so most famous human beings in history, the man most responsible in many ways for the League's creation, the co-leader of the medical teams, the teams from Beowulf, which had preserved human life on old Earth itself after the final war the man who'd seen the need for a coordinating authority that could span hundreds of light years, recognized its necessity in the wake of the catastrophic damage he'd done so much to repair, and spent the last 35 T years of his life bringing that authority into existence. The man whose distant descendant headed the Beowulf system government, which was about to stab the Solarian League in the heart. Of course, he must have literally billions of distant descendants after the next best thing to 800 years, and it was only logical for them to be concentrated in Beowulf and its closest galactic neighbors. Yet it was bitterly ironic that even as Chang Benton Ramirez prepared to oversee the referendum which would supply the dagger, yet another of those descendants commanded the Grand Fleet, which might well drive it home. It was perhaps fortunate so few Solarians were sufficiently aware of their own history to ask why that man's descendants had chosen to destroy all he'd built. All right, Vodoslavsky said at last. My analysts and accountants need more space than we've got over at DeSoto Tower anyway. We've been looking at possible solutions for the last couple of years, really, in a desultory sort of way. For that matter, we've already considered moving into George Benton, and it looks like I can free up everything they need back in DeSoto by moving my administrative personnel over here. That should at least keep it from looking like some kind of... Panic reaction. And how long is it going to take to install these hardwired comms of yours? McCartney demanded. 
For someone whose loose lips had contributed so much to the need for those self-same comms, he sounded remarkably belligerent, Kolokoltsov thought. They'll be running the first lines to all the offices here in the tower within two or three hours, he replied. It'd be faster to just reprogram the wall molly cirques, but a lot less secure, so they're running actual cable through the air ducts and service shafts. According to my security chief and the building executive, they should complete the installation within eight days or so. After that, we can probably go back to electronic conferencing for everything but the most sensitive data. Probably, Abruzzi repeated sourly, then shrugged. All right. I think you may be jumping at shadows, or at least closing the barn door after the cows left, but I also didn't think a friggin' joke with Nathan would turn Hypatia into a damn disaster either. So I'm not gonna tell you you don't have a point, Inakenti. Kolokoltsov nodded and turned his gaze on McCartney. All right, all right. The permanent senior undersecretary of the interior raised both hands. If everyone else is ready to go along with this, who am I to argue? And, he added grudgingly, Malachi's right. If something he and I tossed off in a casual conversation can have the kind of effect your analysts describing, it's probably time we all got paranoid as hell. Not the most gracious ascent in history, Kolokoltsov reflected, but he'd take it. Now, if only he could figure out some way to toss McCartney off the Troika before he did something even more regrettable. Unfortunately, every single one of them knew where too many bodies were buried for the others to safely feed him or her to the wolves. In the meantime, though, and while we're here, McCartney continued, what the hell are we going to do about Hypatia? He looked around the table, his expression grim. It's bad enough we're about to lose Beowulf, but at least where Beowulf's concerned, we've built the case that they must have decided years ago to throw in with the Mantis' imperialist ambitions. We haven't done that in Hypatia's case. Personally, Kolokoltsov had distinct reservations about how well they'd built the case for Beowulf's long-planned treachery against the League. God knew they'd given it their best shot, and the establishment newsies had embraced the narrative. But while the public opinion metrics, here in Sol at least, trying to keep up with current public opinion in star systems hundreds of light years distant, was about as impossible as a task came, were favorable to the government's actions so far, there was no guarantee they'd stay that way. Even here in Sol, a lot of that favorable attitude was probably as much lack of the interest that might have led to opposition, which meant it was subject to change without much notice. And Beowulf had a tremendous amount of well-earned prestige within the League. Given time, that prestige was only too likely to reassert itself in the public's mind, and that could be unfortunate. Despite which, McCartney had a point about Hypatia. Hypatia hadn't been on their radar when they first began looking at other star systems which might follow Beowulf's lead. It should have been, but the Hypatians had adopted a calm, wait-and-see attitude, which, he admitted it, he and his colleagues had misread as fundamental acceptance of the League's indissoluble nature. Unfortunately, that had changed when the Mantis leaked news of Operation Raging Justice to the media long before Massimo Villaretta ever reached Manticore. Hypatia's relations with Beowulf were closer than its relations with Manticore, but Hypatians had been marrying both Beowulfers and Manticorans for centuries. In a lot of ways, technical core world status or not, 
Their population's mindset was more closely attuned to the fringers beyond the Manticore and Wormhole Junction than it was to Sol and Old Terra, and they hadn't reacted well to the dispatch of hundreds of super dreadnoughts to attack Manticore and several million of their relatives without so much as a formal declaration of war. And once the possibility of secession had been mentioned, they'd moved forward far more quickly than anyone could have imagined, aided by a system constitution which made it easy to call snap referendums to approve or disapprove proposed government policies. Kolokoltsov doubted the Hypatian Constitution's drafters had ever envisioned that provision being used for something like this, but their handiwork had let System President Adam Vangelis and his Attorney General Thanos Boyagis put the machinery into motion with astonishing speed. Hypatia would actually vote over a T-month before Beowulf, and there was little question that the outcome of the referendum would impact the Beowulf vote. It's not going to change it, though, he reflected. There's not a doubt in the universe which way Beowulf's going to vote, and there hasn't been from the beginning. What Hypatia will do, unfortunately, is to increase the margin in favor of secession, and probably by a lot. And it'll also mean Hypatia will be the example all the hotheads in those Verge systems cite when they start calling for their star systems to secede. Unless we can figure out a way to diffuse that particular threat, that is. He looked around the table again, thinking about the policy options Stefanos Nye had outlined in the conclusion section of his report. He'd provided half a dozen possible scenarios, but it was clear which one he favored, and Kolokoltsov wondered if the others would be as appalled by it as he was, and whether or not they'd find themselves endorsing it anyway. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks for great editing help to Bain intern Will Allen and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a glittery cascade of universal background radiation and enough dark matter to pave a road to the stars, plus thanks, praise, and gratitude to Philip Pornell and David Weber, who have completed Jerry Pornell's most excellent novel in the Janissary series, Mamelukes. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. Stars.